I don't know if you have friends like this in your life, but I have a friend who is in a lopsided relationship. Over the last 10 years, he has lent her $80,000, of which she has repaid five. It's gone to two failed businesses, and it's gone to one degree that she doesn't use. Okay, and at Christmas, I had this conversation with my friend. I decided, you know, it's time to wade in because it seems like the relationship is just flowing one way, right? I don't know if you have a friend like that. So I did, I waded in and I was like, so tell me about Veronica. Like what, what is she bringing to the table? Like, what is this? Like, it seems like you're on again, off again. It sure seems like you're helping her like all the time and like she can't help herself. Like what's going on, man? Tell me what she brings to the table. Tell me what she contributes to this thing. Silence. Silence. But look, who am I to cast stones? I've been there. I remember in the early days of generations when we met at the school, there was this guy who became my immediate best buddy one week, wanted to have coffee with me every week, was there at generations, was like, man, Max, I love your vision. I love what's going on at generations. This is an amazing thing. Your vision is so spot on. Now, it just so happened to be the case that we were going to make a major purchase as a church, and his company was one of those companies we could have made that purchase from. And when we decided to go with a different company, you know, he wasn't there that Sunday. And then he wasn't there the Sunday after that. And I, I called, and then I was like, oh, you weren't really interested in me. You weren't, you know, you didn't really think my vision was all that. You just wanted to make a sale. Oh, ouch. Wasn't the first time, and it probably won't be the last time. Why is it so hard to find relationships that are truly reciprocal? Have you noticed how hard this has gotten? It's hard out there. Some of you are like, Max, no worries. I got that. I've, had, I've been married 10 years, and let me tell you, there are times I've carried her. There are times she's carried me. It's give and take. That's what marriage is. We're good. That's awesome. You're in the minority. You're in the minority. There are a lot of people that are in lopsided relationships everywhere. I've seen lopsided relationships in romantic relationships. I've had, I've had women say to me, Max, Tears running down her, their, their face. Max, he wasn't really interested in me as a person. All he wanted was sex. I've had guys say to me, Max, man, I just gave and gave and gave. And, I, you know, I had to be this emotional support. Like, I'm telling you, this woman is a black hole. No one will make her happy. I don't know what to do. I've seen the lopsidedness in work relationships. I've had a guy say to me, I had this customer, I mean, I've been over backwards for this customer for five years, and then when they could cut 5% off the bill, they up and left, and he didn't even tell me. Uh, I've had people that have done a project at work where, uh, Max, there were three of us, and we had this goal, and I put in all this eff extra effort, and I brought my hustle and my A game, and we did it. And then my teammate, when the boss talked to her, she didn't mention anything that I did. In fact, she threw me under the bus. Lopsided. Why does things have to be so lopsided? And let's get into church for a moment, shall we? In church out there, there's some lopsidedness in church. I've, had, I've talked to people who've done youth ministry, and they've said, Max, they paid me $10,000 a year, and I had to do Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, 
you know, Sunday mornings. I had 35 youth. I had nobody helping me. And I would put in, they said it was a 15-hour-a-week job. I was putting in 35 hours. And then they came to me and told me that they had to let me go because my parent communication wasn't that great. And I'm like, lopsided, lopsided. And then I've had churches that I've had to consult when they've had pastor transitions. And they've said to me, and I've, I've asked, tell me about the guy that just left. Oh, well, you know, he put in his two and a half years, but it's obvious to us we were just a stepping stone. I mean, he's off to bigger and better now. He didn't really care about us. Oh, ouch, lopsided, lopsided. Okay, so if you're here today and you're younger, if you're 14, 18, 21 years old, would you please hang with me to the very end? Because I'm going to talk about something that really hits where you live, all right? But in the middle, we're going to get into some theology. But I, I promise there's some good stuff at the end. You know what? There is a better way. There is a better way than all of this lopsidedness. I call it mutuality. Mutuality. Psychologists and theologians call it, this is a big word, interdependence. Interdependence. I want today to be your interdependence day where you declare freedom from permanently lopsided relationships. I want that for you. Okay, and in case you miss it, here's the bottom line for today. Yes, you need others. They need you. But mutuality is a way to have and enjoy life-giving relationships, both in the church and outside of the church. You need this. I need this. Okay, so we're in the middle of a series on the doctrine of the Trinity and how, the doctrine of the, how who God is affects us and how we live. So the doctrine of the Trinity, simply put, for those of you who weren't here last week, the doctrine of the Trinity is trying to answer and say there's one what shared by three who's. There's one God in the universe, and that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Can I explain it? Not really. <laughs> Not really. I've tried really hard. It's really, really hard to explain. Um, it defies math. It defies some other things. It's why theologians have called it a mystery. But last week, I talked about the fact that because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God, because God exists in community, He created, and because we're made in His image, we exist in, con in the context of relationships. You didn't learn to walk by yourself, talk by yourself. You didn't learn to think by yourself. It took other people. You're not meant to be alone. Even you introverts are not meant to be alone. Well, today I want to draw out a quality, a, a, a quality, a characteristic of the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that meets where you and I live. And it's something we need in our lives. We get a glimpse of it in Matthew chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. I want to read this. This is from the baptism of Jesus. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, you see all three of them at work here in the baptism of Jesus. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in self-giving love to each other. They live in interdependence. They're needed and they need others and there's give and take and there's reciprocity and there's mutuality. Nowhere in the Bible from the lips of Jesus do you see Jesus going off on the Father. Oh yeah, I've got a Father. Let me tell you about it. You know the work of salvation? All me. 
I don't know what the father does. I'm not supported. I'm not helped. It's all I do is give, 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 and all the father does is take, take, take. Is that in the Bible? No, it's not in the Bible. You never see that from the lips of Jesus. Self-giving love. And, and we see this. It comes out throughout Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We know, um, I want to get this right. Jesus Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a sacrifice. God's spirit gives us new birth and spiritual gifts, and, a, and we're given a spirit of adoption. There's this giving love that permeates the life of the Trinity. But let's face it, we're not God. I don't know if you've noticed this. When you look in the mirror in the morning, it's good to tell yourself, hmm, I am not God. <laughs> Some of you are like, I've got a friend that really needs this today, <laughs> okay? <laughs> I'm not God. So our relationships tend to be characterized by brokenness, and there's love in the mix, but let's be honest, the love often has issues <laughs> that need to be addressed. That's the world we live in. But there is a better way. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul gives an analogy of what this mutuality looks like, what this interdependence looks like. And it's one of the most famous analogies he has. And he wrote it to a ch the, the church in Corinth at the end of a, he was in Ephesus, he was at, at the end of his third year there, and he wrote this letter to these Christians in this city called Corinth. They had problems and issues. And one of the biggest problems they had in Corinth is that a group of the Christians in church thought of themselves, they were kind of arrogant, and they thought, man, we got our acts together. Man, God is so lucky to have us. You, however, you are a loser. You are not needed. In fact, let me just verbalize that on God's behalf. We don't need you. <laughs> um, and so Paul, when he heard about this, he was like, what? He got incensed. So out comes the pen, out comes the scribe, and he's sending off letters. Get your act together, Corinthians. This is not how we roll in the kingdom of God. This is not how Jesus, Team Jesus operates. Okay? So let's start going through this passage. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So if you brought a paper Bible, that's where we'll be today. The human body has many parts, but the many parts make up one whole body. So it is with the body of Christ. Some of us, some of us are Jews, some of us Gentiles, and some of us slaves. Some are free. But we all have been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit. This is one of Paul's most famous analogies. He's saying the church is like a human body. I don't know if you noticed this, but your body has different parts to it, right? Head and shoulders, knees and toes. Knees and toes, right? You've heard the song, okay? So your, your body has different parts. All of those parts work together in unity for your body to do what it needs to do. Now, the Romans of the day used a similar analogy to talk about Rome. Roman orators would give speeches and they would talk about how, ladies and gentlemen, citizens of Rome, lend your ear. Rome is like a body. And the head of the body is Caesar. And every Roman citizen has a part to play in this body of Rome. And people would clap and hail Caesar and it'd be kind of awesome. Now Paul, Paul is kind of throwing stones at this idea a little bit. He's saying, oh yeah, there's a body. It's called the church. And the head isn't Caesar. The head is Jesus. Jesus is the king. Jesus is Caesar. And Jesus has created a new human community 
that is learning to love the way God loves. The church is like a human body. Let's be honest. In the 2,000 years since Paul wrote this, Christians have had, we've had two problems with this idea. The first problem is that there have always been a group of Christians who've had this attitude. I really don't have anything to offer. I'm nobody. I just come and I sit around. Everybody else does the work. They're important. I'm not really important. I don't get to do much at all. <laughs> I'm nobody. Every century, there have been Christians who've had that thought. Then there's another group of Christians who they've had, an, they've had a different problem. Their problem has been, okay, we can enter the presence of God. I'm here. <laughs> no offense, no offense, but there are some worship pastors who've had that crapitude, right? I'm here. The, we can now enter the presence of the Holy of Holies. There are teaching pastors who've had, I've known who've had that attitude, like, where would the church be without my teaching? I'm like, I think they're going to be okay. <laughs> really, I think they're, they're okay. Okay, so we've had those two problems. Well, Paul draws this analogy out, verses 14 and following. Yes, the body has many different parts, not just one part. If the foot says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not the hand, that doesn't make it any less part of the body. And if the ear says, I'm not part of the body because I'm not an eye, would that make any, it any less part of the body? If the whole body were an eye, how would you hear? If your whole body were an ear, how would you smell anything? But our bodies have many parts, and God has put each part just where he wants it. How strange a body would be if it only had one part. Yes, there are many parts, but only one body. It's pretty straightforward, right? You get what he's saying. You don't have to explain this passage in 1 Corinthians much. Every member of the body has a role to play, and all the roles and parts are important for the body to function. Now, it's true. Some of the roles get the limelight. So, like, for example, at Generations Community Church, there's not a single person who does not know who Max Vanderpool is. I get to do the limelight stuff. Yay, me. Okay, so, sorry, I'll be more excited about that. Yay, me. Okay, there's, you're not going to meet anybody. So, like, Max, who? Who's that? Because I get to be in the limelight. But there are other roles that you don't see. For example, you're sitting in a chair right now that Lefty put out. You didn't know that, but if Lefty hadn't done that, like, you might have be sitting on the floor. And some of us, as we get older, that's no bueno. Right now, Jamie's in the nursery right? That's helping out, a lot of us. And, they, and I could go on and on. There's people like uh, Daniel, who's constantly asking the question, okay, gang, if this is where we want to go, what's the next step? There's people like Josh Ballard, who when somebody new comes in in youth group land, they're like, hi, my name's Josh, what's your name? And they're just totally open and friendly about it. Everybody is doing stuff, all right? You need others, and they need you. Let's keep going with what Paul has to say here. Verses 21 to, say, 27. The eye can never say to the hand, I don't need you. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. In fact, some parts of the body that seem the weakest and least important are actually the most necessary. And the parts we regard as less honorable are those we clothe with the greatest care. So we carefully protect those parts that should not be seen while the more honorable parts do not require this special care. So God has put the body together, 
such that extra honor and care are given to those parts that have less dignity. This makes for harmony among all the members so that all of the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. And if one part is honored, all the parts are glad. All of you together are Christ's body, and each of you is part of it. Remember the Roman deal about Rome is the body? Okay, so they would say, Rome is the body, Caesar is the head, and every Roman citizen has a part to play. Those Romans completely believed that some parts were really, really important, and some parts were totally superfluous. And they had no problem going to people and saying, not needed, not needed, so not important, loser, all across the board. The Romans would do this. Now, Paul is reacting to this, and he's like, no, it's not that way at all. No, 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 no. Every part, every role is important. The people at Corinth, there were a group of them that would literally make you feel an inch tall because you didn't have their gift or their ability. And so that's why Paul is writing this letter. He wants to set things straight. He wants to, them to truly get how they do need each other. Um, let me ask you a question. Which, which sounds better to you, the Jesus way or the Roman way? Which sounds better to you? Would you like to be in the Roman way where, you know, hey, sorry about your luck, but you just happen to be the appendix. In a best case scenario, you'll explode and kill us, but really we would do better if we just cut you out now. Who wants to be an appendix? No, the Jesus way is better. Now there are profound implications of this in your life and in my life. And I want to draw this out, starting with the church and moving outward, okay? So let me begin by stating this. The American church right now is not very healthy. <laughs> the American church right now is not very healthy. How many churches in America is it the case where Everybody's doing their part, and there's mutuality and reciprocity. There's a lot of churches where it's really lopsided, isn't it? That's not healthy. That's not biblical. Part of that is the professionalization of ministry. You pay a bunch of pastors to do ministry, and so it's easy to get into the mindset of, well, that's what we pay you to do. Do your job. Minister. It's one of the reasons pastors leave the ministry with such high rates, because they find that they cannot meet all the needs that need to be met. It's tough out there right now. The support structures that used to be in place in the 1950s when mom or dad lived in the same town and you had family and neighbors you could rely on, all of those things are gone. So the, the, the care is just completely different than it used to be, all right? Um, let me let you in on a little known fact about larger churches. Sometimes people will, I, I, I hate it when people disparage churches in general. Um, and so I hope you know that when I talk about the church, I love the church. I have given my life for the church, and I can't wait for the day when Jesus and the church are completely uh, united in the resurrected life. I want the church to live up to its potential. Um, now, some people, they like to badmouth small churches. Other people like to badmouth big churches. Big, small, it doesn't matter. Are you following Jesus? Is Jesus leading? Is there the kind of stuff we see in scripture uh, embedded in, in your DNA, in your church life? But here's how, 
here's the stereotypical larger church in the United States. If you're a church over 5,000 people, on any given weekend, half of the people who come into that congregation will simply sit on their hands. They won't do anything throughout the course of the year, half. So if you're a church of 12,000, 6,000 people will come through your doors. You will need to provide care for your, their kids. You will need to direct them to the right parking space. You will need to do all of these things, and they will sit on their hands the entire year. And 50% of the people who wrote, come into that church of 12,000 will give absolutely nothing in the course of a year. So now let's put that in a, in a real context of where we live. How'd you like to be John Weiss pastoring Southland Christian Church? And they're wanting to honor Jesus. They're wanting to, his kingdom to expand. They're good guys. They're our partners. We're all on the same team. And yet you're trying to go somewhere and half the people won't even help pay the light bill and half the people just sit on their hands. That's rough. Now, for those of you that'd be like, well, how are we doing here? Well, 70% of households are doing something at Generations. That's seven out of 10. You know what I think a healthy ratio for us would be? About 85, 90%. Because in any given time, there's about 10% that are new enough. They've got a cancer diagnosis. There's something going on in their life where they have a, what I call a tap-out season. They're going through a relationship thing, okay? But I would say a healthy number is about 85 to 90%. So the first thing I want you to see is that the American church has gotten lopsided, and that's not biblical, and that's not the way God wants us to work. We're supposed to be, every member, every part has a role to play in the functioning of the body. Now there's a, another practical way this plays out, and this has to do with small groups. If you've ever been in a small group where the leader of the small group has done the snack, and they've done the prayer, and they've hosted it, and they've done the study, and they, they've arranged childcare, that's not mutuality. That's not shared biblical community. That's a service. I mean, that's a great service. Don't get me wrong. I, but biblical community, a biblical group, would have this kind of reciprocity. Every member would be doing their part. I was in, in a Tuesday night group um, that met in my house. Do you know what my job for the Tuesday night group was? To get the house ready. Ding. That's it. <laughs> Uh, Janice, Paul, and Jenny did the study parts. Did you know Janice can ask the most amazing questions? You, she asks the question in a way, and you're like, whoa, I never saw the Bible passage that way before. Um, Karen did prayer requests. My mother coordinated snacks. I mean, everybody had a part to play. So if you tap into a small group this fall, just know that quietly behind the scenes with your small group leader, I'm going to be leaning on them about, so tell me in the group, who's doing what? How's this playing out? Is there mutuality going on in the small group? Well, the last way this plays out for churches is this what I call hierarchical power structure. So let me explain this. Hierarchy in and of itself isn't a bad thing. But when you have a hierarchical power structure where the people at the top are oppressing and taking advantage of the people on the bottom, can we just agree that that's not cool? This is not hard. Let me rephrase this for you. If we have a hierarchical power structure where people at the top are stepping on and taking advantage and oppressing the people at the bottom, can we agree that that's not cool? Thank you. That's not cool. So from time to time, I'll have people come and show up at Generations, and they'll ask a lot of questions about our leadership structure. And I usually know right away, oh, 
you're coming from some place where there was a them and they made all the decisions and they had control and used control in all the bad ways that control can be used and you want to make sure this is a safe place. Got it. Okay? You don't see that in the life of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father isn't thumbing the Son. The Son isn't thumbing the Spirit. That's not how they work. And that's not how we're supposed to work. So let me pause and ask a question. When it comes to this local church, are you doing your thing so that the body functions? Are you doing your thing so that the body functions? Or are you offline at the moment? And if so, what needs to change? What needs to tweak? Let me bring this to out of the church, to real deal, life on the street. Interdependence is not the same thing as codependence. Let me say that again. Interdependence is not the same thing as codependence. Interdependence is healthy. Codependence is not healthy. Interdependence is life-giving. Codependence is life-sucking. <laughs> okay? Here's the definition of codependency. Excessive emotional or psychological reliance on a partner, typically a partner who requires support due to an illness or addiction. Looked at another way, codependent relationships are where one person supports or enables the other person's addiction, poor mental health, immaturity, irresponsibility, or underachievement, okay? It's when the relationship is permanently lopsided. That's my technical definition. Pretty awesome, isn't it? You're like, I can get into that, yeah. So when the relationship is permanently lopsided, that's not healthy, that's not right. That's not the way God wants things to work. It's not the way God works in and of himself. Dr. Henry Cloud put it this way, he said, you know you are codependent when right before you die, somebody else's life flashes before your eyes. <laughs> okay? So at the risk of oversimplification, when the relationship is always or permanently lopsided, when there's no reciprocity, when there's no mutuality, I want you to know that's not healthy. That's not biblical. And it's going to eat you. Okay? Here's kind of a, Here's a chart of quadrants of how that can work, okay? Um, signs you're in a codependent relationship. Uh, you give, give, give. If they're having a bad day, that means you're having a bad day. Um, their emotional state, their in an inability to help themselves totally consumes you, and you've got to help them, okay? Um, that's so different from beneficial interdependence, and what you want is beneficial interdependence, okay? There's good news. There is a better way. It's the mutuality way. It's the Jesus way. It's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit way. It's a better way to live. Now, there's a practical application for this for you moms and dads, right? Mutual interdependence. So if you're in a home, right, and there's one person who does all the work, that's usually an indicator that things are out of whack, um, now, I know this as a recovering OCD perfectionist, right? So for those of you that have that part of you, just don't raise your hand right now. Just quietly listen on the inside. I know they're not going to do it right. But when you deny them the ability to do at all, you're setting up an unhealthy thing in the home, 
Everybody should have a role to play in the, in the life of the home. So the silverware isn't put away right. So the dishwasher got ran wrong. So the piles aren't folded the right way. Again, when you do it all yourself, what tends to happen? You tend to get crotchety and angry and resentful and why can't anybody, right? So remember, you set the system up, you can change it. And I believe in you, you can do this, right? So this is a practical application for home. In case you ever wonder, they don't ever talk about anything in generations of practical. Did you know that the how God is in his essence actually can impact your home? Weird, <laughs> weird. You need others and they need you. When relationships are characterized by mutuality and interdependence, everybody wins. And the relationships are life-giving instead of life-sucking. Interdependence is a good thing, gang. And God can help you get there. 